0: As we continue our series through Acts, I want to start us out with, with a question Do you feel guilty? Do you feel shame? Has something you have done left an indelible mark on your soul that you cannot erase? Has something been done to you that you cannot seem to shake or get free of? What do you do when your conscience pricks you? Do you try to get rid of your guilt or shame by punishing yourself? Or do you maybe try something that will entertain or please you? Maybe distract you from your conscience. Maybe you try to self-medicate with legal or illegal drugs, or even alcohol, sometimes even caffeine. Possibly you act like the Pharisees and become overly self-righteous and judgmental. How do you assuage the guilt and the shame that you are feeling? I think we've all had moments of shame or guilt that we've experienced. Either something done to us or something we've done that leads us to having this terrible feeling on the inside. As Peter is preaching to people just like you and just like me, they are cut to the heart. In many ways, we are like the Jews who put our Savior to death. Instead of wholehearted pursuit of Jesus, in our guilt and our shame, we do one of those four activities. We self-punish we self-please, we self-prescribe, or we self-Pharisee. The solution in this text is much more effective than any of those options. Listen and hear the solution. Last week in Peter's sermon, he was making the case that the people of Israel, need uh, they've already put the Lord to death. They put the Messiah, the King, this Jesus, They put him to death, and the one that they are to cry out for salvation, as Scripture taught, they killed him. What we find out this week is that this preaching of Peter's cut deep into the heart of the listeners. It caused them to be in great distress, and they asked this question, What must I do to be saved? The response that we should all have to the preaching of the word is the same. We need to ask the question, what must I do to be saved? Every time the word is preached, that should convict us. Culturally, there's many different answers to that question, isn't there? Some will say that it's through legal means. Work hard enough. Do the best that you can. Maybe some will say if you do enough good... You will outweigh the evil you've done in your life. Some will say, it's not your fault. You are born this way. Just go with it. Others will say, it doesn't really matter. We all have the same universal salvation. Everybody will be saved. However, none of these are sufficient. None of these options will save you. Let's read our text. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 37. We're going to go through verse 41. 37 says, When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, For the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. What an amazing sermon. Let's pray. Father, as we approach this text, we are reminded of the power of the word through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Father, may our hearts be torn in two by your word. Father, we know that the word of God is living and effective, stronger than any double-edged sword, cutting to the division of the spirit and the soul, to the bone and the marrow. Father, you reveal, you lay open our hearts before you. Father, as we approach this text, may we find your solution to our suffering consciences. May we find the solution to the guilt and the shame that we experience on a daily basis, for not only the the things we've done that cause guilt, but also the shame that we experience because of things done to us. Father, as we approach this text, may we see Christ high and lifted up like the bronze serpent, saving us from the poison of the poisonous snake. Father, may we cling to your cross this morning. May your word go forth in power and in truth. May we be people of the book. As we study it, Father, give us wisdom. As we open your text, give us ears to hear and eyes to see the wonderful things of God. Father, we lift up Florida. We lift the churches up that are worshiping without power right now in the muggy Florida swamps. Uh, Father, we pray for them that they would lift high the name of Jesus. They would be able to uh, coordinate rescue efforts, and they would be a part of the solution. There in the devastation that Hurricane Ian has caused. Father, we thank you for the body of Christ that longs to be obedient to your word. We ask these things in Christ's beautiful and precious name. Amen. Amen. So Peter begins to make the case in his sermon over the last couple of weeks. We've been studying it that these are the days of the Messiah. The Messiah has come. He has inaugurated in many ways the last day. And then he made the case that the pouring out of the Holy Spirit was a sign of these long-expected days that they had been hoping for for years and years, um, ever since the prophecies. Then we saw that the guilt for the killing of the Messiah was placed at the feet of the audience. Those who were listening were guilty of using the Romans to kill their long-expected Jesus. They're a long-expected king. But then he said, but Jesus was no victim. Jesus willingly gave his life. In fact, it was God's plan. God the Father sent God the Son, and then the Holy Spirit gave the life, and he was then the one that convicts them of their guilt. And then this week, Peter's sermon declaring that the king had ascended results in a response. And there are results. We see a change. Because the king has come and has ascended, we must respond to the summons and be saved. So first, let's look at the, the, the response to the king's summoning. 37 through 39 covers this response to the summons of the king. Now, if you have a bulletin on the backside, you have the key points from the sermon. So you can use it to keep notes. Now, some of you may take a lot of notes, and there may not be enough room. So I understand. Uh, use whatever you can. Scrap paper, however. The audience to Peter's sermon, they responded. First, they were pierced to the heart. Let's look at verse 37. When they heard this, what did they hear? Well, they heard what verse 36 said. Verse 36 says, Let all the house of Israel know with certainty That God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Jesus is king, is what Peter said. The one that you killed. So they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? So what was it that had affected them so deeply? Why were they cut to the heart? You know, we have that same saying today, right? It hit me in the heart, or um, it it really hurt my heart. We use that same kind of language, and that's what we see here. And they were hurt. They were cut. They were stabbed in the heart because they had killed that long-expected Messiah. They had used the Romans to do it. Their own oppressors, the ones that they had been longing to get rid of, they used to kill their own king. Think about how devastating that must be to hear that from the mouth of Peter. Think about how deeply convicted they would feel and how much guilt that they would be feeling over that. Not only that, but they know because of Peter's sermon that this Messiah is going to return. He is going to return and bring the wrath of God with him. So in some sense, I believe there's two things going on here in their hearts. One, that they were scared of the wrath of God about to be poured out. Second, I believe it was mixed with guilt. Guilt because they were considered enemies of God because of what they had done. But this fear mixed with guilt led them to do something. It led them to cry out and ask a question. What can we do to undo what we have done? Right? That's the question. What can we do to undo what we did? Don't you ever ask that question? You can make a big mess in the kitchen and you're like, what do I do to undo what I just did? Right? Or your children, they come in full of dirt and mud and they've been trying to wipe it off with their own hands, which only exacerbates the problem, right? And they bring it with them everywhere. What can we do to undo what we did? I have this indelible mark upon me. There's no bleach that will get this white shirt clean. And that's what they've cried out. They realize that they're stained with the guilt and the shame of being rebels against a holy and perfect God. Think of the long legacy of the prophets in the Old Testament who declared the guilt of the people because they rejected their God. The language of adultery is used over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Paul later in Acts, when he talks to the Athenians, he makes the same case. He says we are all created by a creator. We have a creator and we have essentially rebelled against him and we must turn and worship him alone. As Paul was walking through the land of the Athenians, he saw all The idols in athens and they had idols to everything to to every single thing And the one thing he saw was they had even an idol to the unknown god They're like we got idols for everything, but in case we miss something let us make an idol to an unknown god Right, and that's how worried they were about these various gods And paul comes in and he says, you know, I I notice you're very religious. I notice that you worship very carefully and that you even have an idol to this unknown God. Let me tell you who that is. It's the creator. And you have rebelled against him by worshiping all these other gods. You must turn and worship him alone. And so the Jews here, they hear what, Paul, or what Peter has said. And they turn to the rest of the apostles. right? Peter and the apostles. So Peter is the, the spokesperson. But all the apostles are in on this. And they ask the question, What should we do? Now, that's a reasonable question. What should we do? Think about this for a minute. When you sin, do you ask yourself this question? What should I do? What should I do about this feeling of sin or shame and guilt that I feel? Or when someone sins gravely against you and you have these feelings of of anger or bitterness or frustration... Do you ever ask yourself, what should I do? Peter responds to them with, repent and be baptized. Peter says you must turn away from your previous source of salvation and turn to your true hope and salvation. Now, the logic is very tight here, and I'm going to get a little nerdy with you. I'm going to get a little in-depth, so you may want your pencil and pen ready to take this down because we have to think through this. We don't want to miss it. So Peter gives us these commands. Let's look at verse 38. Peter replied, repent and be baptized each of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call. And we really need to unpack this because I think it's been a text that has been greatly abused in church history. So first, we have the command to repent and be baptized. Second, it is addressed to each one individually in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their individual sins. Third, the Holy Spirit elements, they point to a greater truth that it does not only affect them as an individual, but also their families. not only them and their families in a corporate nation of Israel sense, but also every generation to follow. Not every generation to follow, but also those who are far off. So it's an individual person that must repent. The whole nation does not need to repent. It's the individual. And this promise or this gift of the Holy Spirit is for not just this group that he's talking to, but the group after them, the generation after them, the generation after them. And not just in the nation of Israel sense, but also in all the world. right? It will go out as many as the Lord our God will call. So it's not confined to the Jewish people, as we know, Acts really expounds on this, but also to the nations. So remember, the first command is to repent and be baptized. They go hand in hand. As you repent, you're going to want to be baptized. All of this is done in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and the reception of the Holy Spirit. And then Peter adds a section that says, as many as the Lord our God will call. All right. Are you guys confused and lost yet? Here we go. So we can deduce from Peter's sermon a teaching. And that teaching states this. This is the doctrine We are all rebels before the conquering king. We must repent, which means leaving our past loves behind and turning to him, placing our trust in this Lord. That's the the doctrinal statement, if you will. Our repentance then gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is a sign and seal of our salvation, the Holy Spirit indwelling in us is the sign of being in the covenant. The Old Testament promises of God's law being written on the hearts of new covenant people. His dwelling is in us by his spirit. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel thirty-six, thirty-seven, All point to the writing of the law on our own hearts. Now here are some objections. Maybe you are having these objections in your own head right now because you've heard it preached differently. Some Christians have used this passage to argue for the necessity. Here we go. I'm going to step on some toes of infant baptism. But if you follow the logic of this passage, I think you will see that is not a great argument for infant baptism. In fact, I see greater arguments in other places. But this is really a better argument for confessional baptism. Entrance into the covenant is through repentance. And the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a sign and a seal. I've heard that because Peter talks about children, this text means that they are added to the covenantal promise. And so when you baptize an infant, you are putting him into the covenant community as covenantal children. The reason I believe that Peter is including children in this verse is to point to the continuing nature of this promise, not to the members of it. If your children repent, they will be added to this covenant family, just like those who are far off. If we say that those who are far off are included in this promise, we have to say then that children are included in this promise. And it's a universal nature, right? So everyone who is far off. off. So what I would like to try to explain is that this is not a promise uh, to include, only it is a scope that those who repent will be added to the covenant. Does that make sense what I'm saying? So the reason Peter says the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, Is not saying that all your children are automatically added to the covenant community, only that the way into the covenant community is through repentance, and your children can be part of this community. They don't have to base it upon genealogy. And not only them, but anyone who repents that is far off, they too may be part of this family. And guess what? As many as the Lord our God will call will be saved. So not only is the covenant entrance through repentance and believing, but it is also for all those that God calls. And then the response is that of repentance. So what do we do with this information? I think Peter has been making the case for the last two Sundays that Jesus is Lord. And we must respond. Our response should always be repentance. Repentance means to change. Change from going one way to going another. Isaiah 55, 8 talks about my thoughts not being your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. It's an internal change and an external change. Not only do we change our behavior, but we change our thinking. And how do we do that? But by loving the one that can only save us, by trusting in Christ alone to save us. So if we are unbelievers, if you are an unbeliever in this room, if you have not been saved yet, Think about this, you repent by turning from your false hopes, mainly that you can save yourself, and then instead trust in Christ alone to save you. As believers who have already been saved, we sometimes feel convicted when we sin, don't we? When I say sometimes, I mean like all the time, we should be feeling convicted when we sin, right? Right? God gave us a conscience, and that, with the Holy Spirit, convicts us of our sin. And we, too, have a solution. We're not left without hope. When we feel guilty, we have a solution. When our hearts are convicted, we can joyfully turn to our saving Lord. I think the process is simple. We confess where we fail to measure up. We repent. Repentance means we abandon our previous direction And fleece of Christ, we cling to Him. Ephesians four and Colossians three describe this repentance process as putting off the old and putting on the new. This is a common practice of the Christian. We must live up to what we've already been declared as true. Let's say you find yourself lying a lot. Here's an example. As a believer, you feel yourself convicted that you're lying. So you go to God, you ask him for forgiveness. You say, God, I have lied and I know it's a sin. Will you forgive me? But repentance means not only confessing, but also changing. It means turning away from the old self. So you must put off the lying and then you put on truth telling. You put on the opposite. So how do you do that? Well, you start trying to tell the truth on everything that you run into. And sometimes it's super awkward with your children. Dad, that makes you look fat. Thanks. But at least you're telling the truth, right? That's the thing. We put on the opposite to become a truth teller. So your trust in Christ to provide for you should produce the ability to tell the truth even if it is not comfortable. This is the process. Ephesians 4 is very clear. So let's transition to the next point. The crowd is convicted of their rebellion, and this leads to a strong response from the crowd. The crowd then produces results. They recognize they must be saved by the king. And we must be saved by the king. We must throw ourselves at the feet of the king and beg for mercy for our wicked rebellion. No one here worships God as he should be worshipped. I guarantee you, no one here glorifies God to the equal level that his glory demands. No one here treasures Christ as fully as he should be treasured. If we did, we would be without sin. If we treasured Christ as much as we should, none of us would sin because he is more valuable, more attractive that any sin could possibly offer, right? So I'm going to go on my, my, uh, my pet peeve about advertisements. Advertisements don't just present to you a product. They want to make you dissatisfied with everything else and present you the product, right? You don't need OxyClean. You need OxyClean 2.0. OxyClean 1 only cleans your clothes a little bit, but 2.0 will make them sparkle, right? They have all the sparkles in the movies, Right, And and we have this iPhone situation, right? You need the one with the with seven cameras that look like an arachnid, right? You don't need the one that only has six. I don't even know what you, I don't understand. Anyways, you don't need one with 250 gigabytes of memory. You need one with 260 gigabytes, right? Because you got all this stuff you got to keep on there, all those pictures, right? And we have this dissatisfaction with what we already have. And that's what sin does. It tries to produce in you a quick fix. If only you got drunk, you wouldn't feel so socially awkward. Quick fix. The more you do it, the more ingrained it becomes. Right? Why are lies so attractive? Because it gets you out of trouble initially. But then what happens? It builds. Right? And so if we treasured our Christ, more than we treasured anything else, we would be sinless. So a side note is that trusting or treasuring Christ fully is the antidote to sin. If I said, you know what, the Lord will provide for me in my desires, I don't have to sin to get what I want. I'm going to trust in the Lord to provide. This changes everything. This changes how we do everything so we must be saved by the king we can't be saved by drugs or alcohol or netflix shows or the new iphone or buying more groceries or anything like that and peter exhorted them with many words and so this is an interesting note here in in verse 40 with many other words he testified and strongly urged them luke says hey this isn't the whole sermon We don't have room on this papyri to cover everything that Peter said, but let me tell you the gist of it. He already covered it, but here we go. He said, with many other words, he strongly urged them, saying, be saved from this crooked, twisted, corrupt generation. Peter quotes Deuteronomy 32.5. Deuteronomy 32.5 says, his people have acted corruptly toward him. This is their defect. They are not his children, but a devious and crooked generation. Evil comes both from the heart, but also from the outside. We have a double-pronged attack that we are fighting against. Not only are the temptations of the world very strong, but our flesh wants to participate. Try to do this thought experiment with me. We have a water bomb fight this, this after, after church. The kids love the water bomb fight. Can you imagine taking one of your children and saying, you're not allowed to play, and put them on the sideline and make them watch? So not only is their heart longing to be part of it, but they're watching all the fun everyone else is having, right? And that's the same thing that we see in this world. And, and it seems like sin is good and fun and enjoyable, but it's really a banquet in the grave It leads to destruction. So the gospel message contains a call to action. Uh, in fact, this word here that, uh, that Paul is using is that of not only testifying, but that he is the witness, right? We've had this theme flowing through Acts. He's witnessing to them. He is a witness. And remember, one of the first things I asked you, or told you, is that it's not what kind of, uh, if you will be a witness for Christ, it's no matter what kind of witness you will be, right? And that's the the crux of it. And so they need to respond, even though salvation is an act of God. Salvation is God's initiative, prerogative, but they must respond. And guess what? 3,000 people bowed the knee to King Jesus on that day. Verse 41, so those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. Mind-blowing. I can't even imagine how tired the apostles would be trying to baptize all these people. Okay, what an amazing result. Think about this for a minute. While the wrath of God convicts the heart and alerts us to the danger of being in rebellion, it is his mercy or love that leads to repentance. So the wrath, the law, convicts them. They are all guilty of murder. They have used the Romans to kill their king. High treason. In fact, we all fall under that category because of the book of Acts. But it's the gospel that brings the turning. It's the good news that this king has extended his scepter, that you can come To him, rebels do not deserve mercy, yet the king extends his scepter, offering forgiveness to the repentant. Remember the the book of Esther? I know it's been a few weeks since we went through it, but she could not approach the king of uh, uh, the throne of King Xerxes, could she? She was not allowed to enter into the throne room unless she was invited first. And so when she went in, what happens? Xerxes extends the scepter. When Esther approached the king, he extended the scepter and allowed her to come into his presence. And this is what happens here. King Jesus has extended his scepter to any who would repent and come to him. And the time is short, though. We do not know how long this mercy will be offered. And so we must turn to him now. We must turn to him today. We must not wait to accept his offer And in the book of Acts, we see four explicit hospitable receptions to the word by Luke. Luke marks them out here in Jerusalem, Samaria, then the Gentiles in Judea in chapter 11, and then the Jews and the Gentiles in Berea in chapter 17. So if if Pentecost is an allusion to the Sinai tradition, the giving of the law, I think I barely covered it a few weeks ago. If Pentecost is an allusion to the Sinai tradition, then the 3,000 that die in Exodus 32, 28 are remade here as the 3,000 who respond to Peter's message. What an interesting connection that Peter makes and and Luke uh, copies down. King Jesus extends mercy to you and to me today. If you have not surrendered to the king yet, if you are in rebellion, I'm begging you, Stop rebelling. Stop rebelling and come to him now, today. Treasure him. Maybe you're living in rebellion to this king. Maybe you like other things more than obeying the commands of King Jesus because you think you can have it all. Maybe you're treasuring something else more than the true savior. Now is the time to get rid of it and turn to him. Make a clean cut. The message of the kingdom and its king has been inaugurated already, and it will continue as it acts continues. God is faithful to his people, and we only need to look to King Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit. And this is done through repentance and faith, turning away from our rebellion and turning to the king, surrendering and being baptized as a sign of our allegiance. So, the questions that I want to leave you with today, I want to leave you with questions. First, number one is, how will you personally, individually respond to this message? How will you personally, individually respond to this message? Will you repent and believe today? Will you hold fast to Christ Will you treasure him and wait for his timing? You may be living in the wilderness generation right now. You may be waiting for that time when he will preserve you or bring you out. Will you treasure him during that time? And finally, this is the, this is the hard one. Will you reject King Jesus? Will you reject the ascended king? I want to ask you that question. Let's close in prayer. Father, as we approach your throne, we know that we can come with boldness as we hold fast to our confession of faith. Father, what a a merciful son we serve. Lord, as we approach our time of response and we approach uh, a time of, of leaving this congregational meeting, Father, I pray that you would guide us. Lord, I pray that you would convict every heart in this room with sin that they must forsake, sin that they must get rid of, and that they would turn and trust in the living God to provide them the salvation that they so desperately long uh, long for. Lord, help me in my heart to, to rest in my King, to rest under his authority, not seeking out my own wills and my own wants. Lord, help me to pray, thy will be done, thy kingdom come. Lord, help me to not pray, my will be done, my kingdom come. Because Father, we know that my kingdom is dirt and ashes, but your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. So Father, I pray that we would all recommit our hearts to you this morning, that we would trust fully in the name of Jesus, that we would repent from the ways of the world and seek you and seek you alone. Father, if there is anyone in here who has been meddling on both sides of the aisle, that they would turn from the things of this world and turn directly to you. Lord, help us to treasure you as we should treasure you. Help us to treasure the ascended king as he is to be treasured. Father, we ask these things. We can only do this through the power of your spirit. Seal us and guide us. And we ask these things in the beautiful name of Christ. Amen.